over the years, there have been a couple of occasions when, after I've preached, uh, someone's come up and said, um, there were times then when you were a little bit repetitive. Um, Sometimes that criticism has come from someone who shall uh, remain nameless, um, but she is my most faithful and honest critic. And uh, sometimes uh, it's been a very helpful observation. However, um, my one defence is that I'm in good company. Uh, Because if there's one accusation you might wish to bring against John in this letter, is that he's a little bit repetitive. But of course, in writing, he's being led by the Spirit of God. It's actually God who's being repetitive in this letter. Why? Because we're so dull to learn and we're so slow to remember. And he's talking about some important things. He wants us to be assured. We who are Christian believers, he wants you to be assured that you are indeed in Christ. And for those of you who are not Christians and who are listening in, he wants you to see what it does mean to be a follower of Christ. And as he begins his conclusion, he's going to remind us again of this three-chord thread that is running all the way through this letter. These three things which summarize the life of a Christian believer, the life of a follower of Christ. John is determined, God through John is determined to firmly cement these things into our minds. These things he's been teaching, these three vital tests, these three proofs which assure you that you are a Christian believer and a follower of Christ. Faith in Christ as the Son of God, the things you believe about Christ and his gospel. Love for his people and obedience to all that he commands you. Believing the right things, walking the right way and loving the saints of Christ. And as he does this, as we get to chapter 5 and he is, as you can see, if you've got your Bible open, he's drawing towards the end of his letter now. He reminds us in verse 1 of the necessity of the new birth. These things that he's writing about, they're not things that you can engineer yourself into your own life. These aren't three things that you can just say to yourself, okay, right, I can see what is necessary to be a Christian. I'm now going to set about and do these three things. It doesn't work that way at all. And in the opening verse of uh, 1 John 5, we read these words, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and everyone who loves him, him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. Whoever believes is born of God. Now those words, as we have them in our English translations, don't actually convey 
a very special nuance which was there in the original Greek. Because we don't get the sense of the two tenses that John uses when he's writing. When he says, whoever believes, he's using the present tense. You who believe right now, that is your position. You believe, you're of faith. But when he says, is born of God, he uses a different tense in the Greek. He uses the perfect tense. What does that mean? Well, when he says, whoever believes, and he has that in the present tense, he's saying, right now, today, you believe. But why do you believe? It's because of something which happened in the past and which continues to be true today and which will continue to be true tomorrow. That's the perfect tense. You've been born again. The reason you believe today is because of something that happened back then, something which is still true now, and something that will always be true of you. You've been born again. And that's why you believe. We have become those who are begotten of God. God has done it. You are God's handiwork. You in your faith and in your salvation are God's handiwork. You must never congratulate someone for becoming a Christian as if they have made a good decision. Oh, you've decided to become a Christian. Well done, you. No, no. That's not the language to use. That's the wrong language to use. When someone becomes a Christian, what is the right response? The response is not to walk up to them and pat them on the back and shake their hand and say, well done, you. The correct response is to fall down on your knees in praise and thanksgiving to God. Why? Because it's God that's done it. God did it. Imagine if we had been witnesses at the conversion of Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road. Put yourself there for one second. If you're not sure about what happened, he's riding out along the road to Damascus. He's persecuting Christians. He's out to rid the Jewish world of these troublesome Christians. He's breathing all kinds of threats of hatred and murder. And God, quite unexpected to Saul, intervenes and intercepts him on the road and stops him in his tracks and the light shines from heaven and the very voice of Christ cries out. Now imagine you've been there. Imagine you'd seen that light. Imagine you'd heard that voice and then you see Paul as he picks himself up out of the dirt, a blind man, for God had blinded his eyes. You wouldn't walk up to him, pat him on the back 
shake him by the hand and congratulate him for what's just happened, would you? You'd be lost in wonder at what God had just done to him. At what God had just done for him. If you'd be saying anything, you'd be saying, what was that? Was that God? That must have been God. That can only have been God. Look at what God just did. Saul of Tarsus was born again. And it was God's doing. It's the same in every single Christian here this morning. It was God's doing. You see, what John is talking about in this letter is the evidence and the proof of you being born again. God has taken hold of you and changed you. This is the work of God in the life of the sinner. You see, the Bible leaves us in no doubt whatsoever what our state is in our sinfulness. Let me just take you through a few scriptures briefly. First in John's Gospel. And in chapter 5, at verse 24, this is the Lord Jesus speaking. Assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. And shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Now, you didn't do that. You can't do that. God does that. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Now, how does a dead man or a dead woman hear anything but that the power of God is at work? Those who hear will live. God is at work in the life of a dead sinner. It is all God's doing. Those well-known verses at the opening of Ephesians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul explains how we've been brought by God from death to life, made alive by God in Christ Jesus. We were dead in trespasses, but God made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up together. God has done it in the life of the sinner. And later on in Ephesians, in chapter 4 and at verse 18, Paul talks about those uh, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them because of the blindness of their heart. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't have anything in me to overcome that. Do you? This is God's work within me. And he repeats it at the beginning of his letters to the Colossians, verse 21 of Colossians 1. You who once were, once were what? Alienated. Enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. God in Christ reconciling sinners to himself. 
The sinner is helpless to do anything about their state. Unless God first moves in them and brings to them and places within them his power and his grace and his light and his life. Then, having been made alive, then, having been born again, there comes understanding. There comes acceptance of the gospel. There comes confession of sin. There comes repentance. And there comes faith in one born again, made alive, made new. Is that your experience and testimony this morning? That God has done that for me. God has done that in me. Now, John is saying, if that has happened, certain things must follow. That's what he's been talking about in this letter. As we read elsewhere in the scriptures, this faith without works... This faith which does not work itself out in us to produce certain things, that's no faith at all. If it's not producing these things, it isn't saving faith. It's a false confession that you've made. And John continues to point out again and again to us these three works of God's Spirit within us. Believing the truth, walking in obedience... And loving the saints. But it all begins with God. It all continues with God. And one day Christ will return and complete that which he's begun. Are you born again? The second thing we see in this letter, in these verses. These three things that John is talking about. One of the things he's keen to emphasise is if, if you don't have all three, actually you don't have any. You may think you do. You might say you do. But the reality is if these three things are not working themselves out in the life of a Christian, you don't have any of them in reality. Now, here's an interesting question. If I were to say... To you, how do you know that you love other Christians? What would you say? How would you answer that question? How do you know that you love other Christians? If someone asked me that question, I think my response would be to try and point to examples of where I have shown that love. I guess that would probably be be your response as well how do you know that you love other christians well look at this and look at that and don't you remember when but john gives a surprisingly different answer to the question how do you know that you love other christians john gives this answer because I keep God's commandments. Hmm. What? 
Why answer the question like that? Because that is how intertwined these three things need to be in the life of the believer. That's how closely connected these three things are in the life of the Christian. This is the all-embracing work that God produces in the life of each one who has been born again and who is a follower of Christ. By this we know, verse 2, that we love the children of God. Now you might expect John to go on and give examples of that love. This is how we know we love the children of God. We do this, we do this, we do this. And it's all related to loving them. But he doesn't do that. He actually mentions something completely different. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. You see, part of your love for other believers in this church is that you love God and keep his commandments. That is actually part of your love for them. Because if you're part of a local church and you say you love the Lord's people, but you live your life with complete disregard for the word of God, and if you live your life with complete disregard for the things that we are commanded to do as Christians, well, what kind of example are you going to be to those Christians who you say you love? Think of the circumstance in your home. The parent who says they love their children. Now, the parent who truly loves their children, they're not just going to talk about the things that they do that demonstrate their love, like buying them loads of presents at Christmas and birthdays and taking them on treats and all those kinds of things. They're also going to say, well, one of the ways that I show I love my child is the way I discipline them. One of the ways that I show my love for my children is the way that I direct them according to truth. Because I want them to turn out a certain way. And it's kind of the same here, you see. These things are so intertwined that if we say that we love the brethren, if we say that we love fellow Christians, one of the important ways that we demonstrate that love is that actually we live a godly and Christ-like example in front of them. And you cannot do that unless you're obeying the Lord and keeping his commandments in his word. Can you? You see how these, John wants us to understand how these three, you can't separate these three things. They form a whole. And we can't pick and choose between them. All of these things are working together within me and within us as a fellowship of God's people. And that's what John wants us to see. It's what he wants us to understand. When Paul wrote to the Colossians at the beginning of that letter, I've mentioned Colossians 1 already, but we'll re just read a verse, not the one I mentioned before. The opening few verses from verse 3, Paul says this when he writes to the church in Colossae. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you and has also in all the world is bringing forth fruit 
as it is among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. In truth. And he talks about the love that they have for one another. But he also talks about the faith that they have in Christ Jesus. And he also talks about the fact that everything they do is according to the truth. He mentions those three things there as he opens his letter to the Colossian church. So John is saying, just as Paul does in his letters, you see, how can I know that my love for the saints is a genuine mark of Christian love? The answer isn't always to try and analyse all the examples of my love I can think of. It's actually more straightforward than that. The answer is because I have this mark as well, obedience. Obedience. You love all the saints, that's great. But do so being faithful to all the commands of God. Show them how a Christian ought to be living obediently in the light of God's word. Model it out to them. Everything that God requires of you, do it. Everything that God's word says a Christian should look like and live like and be like, do it. And do it together. That actually is a mark of your love for one another. But it is a fact, isn't it? Even amongst Christians, sadly, that when we talk about being obedient to God's commands, we can often feel a heaviness coming over us. Oh, here we go. Here we go. The big stick. It's not that at all, is it? It's God's commands. And John says... Of Christians, God's commandments are not burdensome. They're not. Now, back in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 11, Jesus says some... uh, Sorry, Matthew chapter 11, not Mark. In uh, Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says some words which are often quoted... He says from verse 28, Come to me, all you who are heavy laden and who labour, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you. What does that mean? What is Christ's yoke? Well, let me tell you that part of taking Christ's yoke upon you, to be yoked... Well, if you were an oxen, back in Bible times, you'd be placed alongside another oxen to plough the fields and you'd be yoked together. And if you're going to be yoked to Christ, it means that you have to go with him his way, surely. You're being yoked. Taking Christ's yoke upon you means that you're going to be obedient. Taking Christ's yoke upon you means that you're going to walk in his ways and do his will. 
and follow his commandments. But he also says this, I'm gentle, I'm lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And John says, keeping Christ's commandments is not a burdensome thing for a Christian. Now, the world sees Christianity as burdensome. It's just about a big long list of do's and don'ts, they say. It's restrictive, it's cloying, it's stifling. But you see, the reality is it's those who are kept captive in their sins who are actually under the greatest burden. Look around this sinful world at the lives that people are living. Look at the lives of those who reject God and who reject his commandments and all you will see are all the burdens that come with that life. You'll see lives blighted by crime, broken relationships, disappointments, addictions, wars, civil unrest, strife of every sort. Why? Because they've rejected God wholesale and they've turned their back on his ways, they've turned their back on his commandments and their their lives are just blighted with trouble after trouble after trouble. Lives striving to accomplish impossible goals and finding no purpose or meaning. But God's way is not a burden we're set free from all of that we're set free now it's true of course that living God's way in this world puts us at odds with the world in a way that will often bring oppression and can even bring great persecution against us but you see whilst the sinful way may at times bring some momentary pleasure it will only ever lead to eternal misery always Whereas we have the the, the hope and the promise of everlasting life. Even if for a while we must suffer. But we have this great hope at the end. And you see you turn to the Psalms and you read there the words of the psalmist. And over and over again the psalmist pours out their heart. How I love God's word. How I love God's testimony. How I love God's commandments. How my soul loves God's law. Why? For this God created you. You're made to live that way. That's what's good for you. That's what's best for you. To live the way God has created you to live. And when you come into Christ... That's what you're restored to once again, to live God's way. And our hearts as Christian believers should be shouting out, I love God's law. I love God's ways. In it, there is freedom and there is rejoicing and there is comfort and there is rest. The believer, the follower of Christ does not find his commandments burdensome. You embrace them. You love them. This is my God and my Saviour, and he knows what's best for me. He knows what pleases him. Let's go his way.
That's the Christian. And then one fourth and final thing from these verses, from verse 4 and verse 5, the victory of our faith. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The victory of our faith. Now, when we talk about victory as Christians, we need to be very careful that we define exactly what we mean. Some people talk about us being victorious in the world. In other words, as a Christian, all God wants to do is bless your every worldly endeavour. So that in your job, in your career, in your academic life, in your health, in your wealth, in your happiness, all you will ever know is unbelievable joy, um, triumph over every conflict, all your problems resolved, just this uh, ongoing bliss, no struggles, just victory of every sort in the world. In all of these worldly circumstances, in all of these worldly endeavours in which you are engaged, all you will ever know is a victorious life over all of these things. But you see, the language of victory in the Bible is not that we live some kind of victorious life in the midst of the world but that we live a victorious life that overcomes the world. The world is sinful. And everything it does is an outpouring of that sinfulness. But we have been brought to a place in Christ where we are able to overcome that sin. We are able to live a life of holiness in a world of unholiness. We're able to live a life of righteousness in a world of unrighteousness. We're able to live a life of obedience in a world of disobedience. That is the victory that God gives us in our lives. That in Christ Jesus, you can live as a godly man or woman in this ungodly world and age. That is the victory that God gives you in Christ Jesus. We are overcomers of this sinful world in which we live. It no longer has its hold and sway over you. It no longer has its influence upon you like it used to. You no longer feel the need to just run along with the crowd You have the confidence and the assurance and the hope in Christ to stand as a minority against the tide. That is overcoming the world. And let me close with a story about what it means to overcome in the world. Some of you will know only too well, some of you might be completely oblivious to the fact that in October of this year, we actually celebrate the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation in Europe. It began with one very bold 
very isolated Roman Catholic priest who went up to a church and nailed to its door his convictions concerning the word of God. 95 points. And God raised up that one man, Martin Luther, 500 years ago in October. By the way, we'll be holding an event one Saturday in October with the Listen Liverpool churches about that. We'll tell you a bit more about that in another month or so. They were startling times in Europe 500 years ago. As those who became convinced, convinced evangelicals, convinced Bible-believing Christians, and stood up and stood out against the tyranny of the Roman Catholic Church in Europe at a time when church and state were one and the same. And that reformation came to England's shores. I've mentioned in the past about um, those two men, Latimer and Ridley, who together were burnt at the stake in Oxford. Debbie and I were in Oxford a few weeks ago on holiday. And if you go in Broad Street... I think it's on the wall of Balliol College. There's a a carved stone plaque. And it points you to a cross in the middle of the road. It's there, you can see it. And there is the place in the 1500s where Latimer and Ridley, two Church of England clerics, were burned at the stake for holding fast to the word of God. Let me tell you about another man, John Hooper. He became the Bishop of Gloucester in 1551. Oh, that we had a few more Anglican bishops like those men. Well, he'd been the Bishop of Gloucester for a a few years. And in 1553, Mary Tudor, who was Roman Catholic, came to power. And there was a great outpouring of violence and tyranny against men like Hooper who were convinced of biblical truth. And John Hooper was arrested. He refused to recant his beliefs in Christ and the gospel and in his understanding of God's word. He refused to go back to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, even though he knew what would come. Someone came to John Hooper after he'd been uh, sentenced to death And in trying to convince John Hooper that he should change his mind and that he should give in, they said said these words to Hooper, consider that life is sweet and death is bitter. In other words, John, surely it's easier and better just to give in so that at least you can carry on living? At least your life will be spared. Wouldn't you rather live? John Hooper's reply. The death to come. In other words, the judgment of God. Is more bitter. The life to come. More sweet. And on the 9th of February. He was burnt to death. 
55. But he was not defeated by the world. He overcame the world that day. Because now, he's with Christ forever. That's what the Bible means by victory over the world. And as a Christian, you have it. John wants us to be convinced in our hearts. He wants you to be convinced in your heart. You are in Christ. You love the Lord's people. You will follow him in obedience wherever he may lead you, just like John Hooper did. Because you are victorious over the world. You are safe for all eternity in Jesus. May we all have that assurance in our hearts today.